Welcome to Neo Chats, an interview-style podcast focusing on educating neonatal nurses, caring for newborns and their families, hosted by Jenna Morton. It is a project of the Canadian Association of Neonatal Nurses, a nonprofit organization committed to the health and well-being of newborns and their families. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Neo Chats. Today, we revisit our conversation from episode one with neonatologist, Dr. Michael Narby. Dr. Narby is a leading voice in Canadian neonatal care. He maintains the website, All Things Neonatal, is part of the Canadian Pediatric Society's Fetus and Newborn Committee. All of this in addition to his work at the Health Sciences Centre in Winnipeg. When we first spoke in early April, you framed the conversation by establishing what we know or believe that we know about transmission of COVID-19 between mother and newborn. So let's revisit where we stand with that knowledge today, April 20th, 2020. So thank you for having me on again. So since I was last on, um, there's been quite a few case series, case reports that have come out and actually a lot more um, summations, I would say, of what's already out there and in terms of different organizations coming out with recommendations. Probably one of the the big things that uh, came out was, of course, the CPS released um, our recommendations um, and our recommendations have uh, been tweaked a little and we can talk about that in a bit. But as far as the um, mother and the newborn, and, and actually, when I think about it, the tweaks have to do with that. The belief still has been that vertical transmission is unlikely. Um, however, um, I think last time when we talked, I said the timing of the podcast was very interesting. Well, once again, it's very interesting because a paper just came out of Peru um, just today that I just saw uh, documenting a case of a baby being positive at 16 hours of age. Now, this would be the earliest documented case, and it certainly raises the question of vertical transmission. I will have to leave you with a tease, not to say that you have to have me on again, but to say that I do have some questions about this case that were not reported in the document that they submitted for publication, which would either strengthen or weaken the argument that the baby got this while they were in the mother's womb. We do know that there are over 100 cases now uh, that have been documented of newborns, none of whom have come back positive. So this would be uh, an aberration, if you will. And so there are some questions about that one. But I mentioned that paper out of Peru because I think you're probably in the next 48 hours going to see a lot of uh, social media stuff about this because it's certainly the earliest case. I think one of the things that it does raise a flag on, which will possibly influence uh, recommendations is um, we had talked previously about transport of the neonate and the notion that because the earliest documented case was 36 hours, maybe you don't need to use uh, N95 masks for babies that have respiratory distress and need non-invasive or invasive respiratory support uh, in the first 24 hours for transport purposes. Having a baby at 16 hours who's positive does raise questions about that. I think that's that's one of the big things. Um, in terms of um, the CPS statement, we did clarify some of the language around what is required in the case room if you are concerned about vertical transmission. We um, specifically mentioned that for PPV, provision of CPAP or intubation, uh, the best strategy if you're concerned about vertical transmission would be to use an N95 mask. 
Um, those, those are some of the changes that we've done, um, you know, since, um, since we first came out with the statements and, and what our understanding of vertical transmission is. And I, and I think it might be interesting for your readers or your listeners, I guess, um, to know that with the Canadian Pediatric Society, this is a, uh, it's almost like a living document or series of documents, if you will. Um, we're dedicated to every week, actually on Mondays, uh, looking at the evidence that's out there. And then if needed, revising the documents to reflect the most current literature. How different a process is this to what you're used to working with in terms of coming out with recommendations and, and practices and things like that? Um, th this is a whole new world, and, and I don't mean to, um, you know, overstate that. Uh, or I know that sounds like it's cliche, but I think one of the things, uh, I mean, it's no, it's no secret that healthcare workers across the world are trying to cope with uh, this pandemic and the challenges that caring for patients present uh, during the pandemic. But on the administrative front, in terms of planning and trying to um, you know, do what's best based on the evidence. I've talked locally, and I guess I'll speak nationally here, that it's very difficult when the goalposts continue to change. So, you know, local IP and C recommendations differ between provinces, uh, may differ between hospitals. And so um, I certainly understand, you know, for uh, people out there, when you're looking at, for example, the Canadian Pediatric Society recommendations, they may not fit with what your local IPNC has been recommending. And that may be, uh, as, we, as we learn more about the state of the virus, um, you know, for example, um, burden of illness has a lot to do with this. You know, my, my thoughts and prayers go out to those living in places like um, Quebec and hardest hit in Canada with about 50% of the virus, viral cases, and then Ontario, and then Alberta. If you look at those three provinces, they make up the lion's share uh, of the provincial landscape. So in those provinces, you might have a very different outlook in terms of what sort of practices you put in place because any person who comes through the door, your index of suspicion that they may have COVID-19 is a lot higher than, for example, in New Brunswick, which I think has the lowest case number in the country at the moment, with Manitoba being second. When you have changes in the data and you have different prevalences across the country, um, it's very challenging for institutions, for programs, and for that matter, for national bodies um, to figure out what to recommend. And then as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the additional uh, challenge that we face is, you know, and it, it's hard to even imagine I'm saying this, but this is still a new disease. This is not, you know, I, I realize people feel like we have been dealing with this our whole lives now but the reality is we first heard about this in uh, December and when we first heard about it in December you know to quote uh, the president south of the border uh, this was the Chinese virus you know this was not anything that we, we had to worry about and I'm not saying that I support that individual but I'm just saying that was the shared perspective was that this was something that was limited to China and I think many of us at the time thought well that's terrible you know, but we didn't really think it was going to affect us. And now here we are with pretty significant changes to our daily life, but we've only been experiencing this for about a month, month and a half, as far as significant changes. So when you compare this to something like group B strep, which uh, can infect babies, or 
Haemophilus influenza pneumonia, where we have years and years of data that we can look at, we're still very early. And so, you know, when you have, let's say, 10 papers on something, and then an 11th paper comes out, that 11th paper may move the needle. Uh, whereas when you've got a thousand papers and one paper then comes out, it's much less likely to move the needle. So I think we need to appreciate, you know, the reason why people who are advising you may be flip-flopping or changing their recommendations is because when something comes out, it um, does have more of a chance of influencing. And then the next thing I'll say, which is a bit controversial, but well, we're on a podcast, so it's not terrible to be controversial, has to do with the quality of the research. Something that I think we have to acknowledge is, and this is just speculation, journals. There are thousands of journals out there. And in order for a journal to publish, it needs content. Well, if things are like they are here in Manitoba and many places, there's really not a lot of research going on right now because faculties are mostly at home, uh, difficult to be in the lab. So as fewer publications are submitted, um, I do have some concerns about the vetting of these publications. Uh, when you need to fill your journal and put something out, I do worry about standards potentially being relaxed. Just so we're clear, I don't have any data to back up that. I'm just suggesting that I worry a little bit. Um, the other thing I worry a little bit about is that COVID-19 is such a hot topic. I mean, you can't, you can't turn on the TV or radio or a podcast, you know, with, without hearing about COVID-19. And there's so much coming out that, again, if the standards are not as high as they once were, you know, what's the quality of the information we're getting? And, and moreover, to bring you back to the comment I made earlier about the study from Peru, you know, there's two or three pieces of information that I'm requesting, or I, I've requested from the authors of that paper because they're pieces of information that I think are very important to know before drawing a conclusion. Now, did they not have those pieces of information when they submitted them? Did the reviewer realize that those pieces of information were missing or were they in a rush to get to publication? So I don't know if some of these things are, are going on or not, but it's certainly when you've got, you know, for every, if a journal is receiving normally uh, 100 submissions a week for publication, and they're down to five, you wonder about whether some of these things can squeak through. Well, and, and to that point, even if they are valid, and you get the answers you're looking for, you then have media who aren't trained in the scientific side of things reporting on these much more frequently than we did before. And uh, it can really kind of snowball into a situation we don't need. Well, and let's be honest. Um, sadly, bad news sells a lot more papers than good news. I hate to say it, but, you know, if something comes out that sounds sensational and scary, it's going to get a lot of reads. Uh, if something comes out saying, if it's just another, so for example, when we're talking about vertical transmission, if a, if a journal article comes out saying, here's another five cases of no vertical transmission, well, you and I, or myself, maybe more so than you, we read it, we see the abstract, we go, oh, great, that goes with what I believe. You see one, though, that it shows that vertical transmission does occur. Well, that's frightening, you know, and all of a sudden that uh, gets a lot of hits. And in fact, if you, if you look, uh, if, if you're listening to this and you want to see proof of that, if you go to JAMA, the Journal of, American, Journal of the American Medical Association, 
pediatrics, so JAMA Pediatrics, if you go to their homepage, on the right side, you will see their most frequently downloaded articles. And if I'm not mistaken, there's been over 100,000 downloads now of the article that I think I referenced previously about 33 babies and their outcome in Wuhan, China, of which um, three tested, they claimed positive for vertical transmission. And so that's what sells, you know, the sensational. So you, you're spot on in your comment about, about media. With all of that said, what are some of the factual things and some of the things that, that we do know and that we should be keeping in mind in terms of our healthcare workers having to go into work every day with all of this going on? Some of the things we know, transmission can be lessened through social distancing. I mean, that, I hate to sound like a broken record, but that's true. If you don't come in contact with people, they can't give you the virus, okay? Having said that, if you um, disregard recommendations to stay at home unless absolutely necessary to go out, you do put yourself at risk of going out and touching things which other people may have touched. Touching shopping carts, produce, baking, you know, at the grocery store. Uh, where somebody's touched it, who may have touched their face, may have touched their nose. They might have been wearing a mask, but if they're constantly adjusting the mask and because it's slipping off the nose, they may have contaminated that. So we do know that social distancing helps to prevent the spread of the virus. We also know avoiding touching your face, which is the way the virus can enter your mucosa through the mouth or through the, the nose is important. So that's what we know. We also know, thankfully, that if you are pregnant, you likely don't need to worry. Unlike SARS, the first version, and MERS after it, those coronaviruses led to significant rates of preterm birth. We are not seeing that with um, COVID-2 or SARS-CoV-2. Um, so that's a fact. The overwhelming odds are that you, your baby will not get COVID from you. If you do happen through handling of your infant to transmit COVID or the virus that causes COVID to them, they are most likely to have a very mild course. So those are the things we know that I think should put people's minds at ease. The other thing that I think we also know is that pregnant women do not um, seem to have a severe course with COVID too. They may ha have, a, have a severe course, but the majority will not. Um, so that's another thing, peace of mind, uh, that I think people, people should have. The other thing, uh, I keep saying the other thing, but another thing that I think is, is hard for people, and you know, as a, as a mother and as a father, I know that this is, will resonate, but uh, because of the need to limit transmission, uh, separation of mothers and babies, fathers and babies, if you are COVID positive, is occurring right across the country. I think there are a few exceptions to that, but many units have now opted to separate. You know, you might ask why, you know, so if that's if they're in NICU, I should clarify that. If they're in a postpartum ward, they typically will put them together and isolate together in the room. But if you're in the NICU, the risk is um, if a mom or father steps out of that room or touches surfaces, touches their nose, um, you know, and they're not meaning to harm anyone. We all know you, you don't want to harm anybody, but if you do and somebody comes along and touches them and then goes and cares for somebody else, uh, we could experience uh, potential outbreaks if we allow people to visit. So 
Those are the things that I think we know right now. I still think there's a lot of things we don't know. One of the things that I think we still don't know and I think is going to be important to think about is, is severity of illness directly correlated with viral load? What I mean by that is, should we, is it safe to assume that a mother who, let's say, has severe uh, COVID disease has a lot more virus in their bloodstream or in their body um, than a mother who doesn't? Because maybe it's those mothers who are at risk if vertical transmission does occur. Is it the mothers with severe disease that would transmit? Because we do know that a lot of people don't uh, show uh, severe disease. In fact, a lot of people are asymptomatic. And if you look at uh, one last thing I'll say on this topic, because it made the news, um, is if you look at, the, I think it was Santa Clara County, if you look at the Bay Area uh, in Santa Clara, they documented, I think it was somewhere uh, serologically, so doing antibody testing revealed that somewhere between 50 to 60 times the number of people uh, that they thought had experienced coronavirus have, corona, have had coronavirus. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think we should be talking about? There's potentially, depending on the answers that I get to my question from the authors in Peru, some pretty big changes that may come. You know, if it looks like it is a real case of vertical transmission, then, I mean, there are things that we will have to change. I mean, really at least strongly consider changing. So I think that that's, I would leave it at that. I think there could be some big changes coming, but I think we've touched on everything that I, I think is out there right now. Well, then I think we should wrap things up there for this discussion okay. and, uh, and maybe make plans to, to talk again in a few weeks if things have changed once more. Sure. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Dr. Michael Narvi is a neonatologist practicing in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He is an active researcher and educator and the voice behind the website, All Things Neonatal. NeoChats is a project of the Canadian Association of Neonatal Nurses. This series is supported by an unrestricted educational grant by Malacroft. The content producer and host is Jenna Morton. Technical production by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub. For more information on the association, visit our website at www.neonatalcan.ca or our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages.